Gentlemen, boys and girls, come as you are as we kick off an all-new episode of the Film Effect Podcast, giving you full effect deep dives for the Film Effect archives. Comic book films are a dime a dozen, especially in today's society where just about every other week an all-new superhero film seems to open up and either puts up big box office numbers or just misses the mark. But what happens when there's no IP or hope in sight? Well... You seemingly take matters into your own hands, like director Sam Raimi did for today's film. Develop your own backstory and give your character a unique concept. And then poof, the sky's the limit. Kids and heroes, I'm Edward J. Snyder, and this is Dark Man. Who? No foolish heroics, if you please. Is. Dark Man. They destroyed everything he had. All that he loved. Everything that he was. Now, crime has a new enemy, and justice has a brand new face. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. The good news is that I know who's behind our little troubles of late. Finish it. He has the power to look like any man. They still both sons of witches! But he is unlike any man. I gotta tell you something about me. He's a cockroach. You think you kill him? And he pops up someplace else. In the darkest hour. There's a light that shines on every human being. But one. From director Sam Raimi. Dark Man. 
In Darkman, a brilliant scientist left for dead returns to exact revenge on the people who burned him alive. So there it was. Just a few short weeks ago, I was sitting on my couch. It was a rainy afternoon, watching Sam Raimi's Darkman from 1990, and it hit me. This film has never once been considered for an episode of the film effect before. And that's a real shame. Darkman's a real treat for fans of popcorn flicks who enjoy really over-the-top, zany material that only Sam Raimi himself could come up with. And mind you, this was only a few short years after Evil Dead 2. In one hand, you've got Raimi trying to capture some of that Batman 89 magic, while in the other is his peculiar Three Stooges style of humor. That slapstick stuff really had become his shtick by that point, and he'd only double down on that a few years later with Army of Darkness. Darkman's really something special, though. There's a lot of really great stuff that would come from this, and not only that, it also helped introduce Larry Drake to a whole slew of fans from the genre side of things. Between this film and the iconic Tales from the Crypt episode and All Through the House, followed by his role as the slasher villain Dr. Giggles, as well as a role in a different Tales from the Crypt episode called The Secret Somewhere in Between, Larry Drake would go on to be a legend in the genre community before his untimely passing in 2016. I also believe Darkman is special because of its distinctive take on the superhero genre. Instead of playing things safe, Sam chose to adapt his original concept into the titular character that would really help it achieve cult status in the decades since its release. And it would go on to spawn a brief series of direct-to-video sequels in Darkman 2 The Return of Durant and Darkman 3 Die Darkman Die with Arnold Vuzler replacing Liam Neeson as Dr. Westlake. Even though the actor playing Westlake was a downgrade, they managed to bring back Larry Drake for another run as well as genre veteran Jeff Fahey as the villains for the sequels. But... We're not here to talk about Darkman 2 or Darkman 3, are we? No. No, we're not. So let's begin our film effect treatment of Sam Raimi's Darkman with a recount of my first time experience. Oh my goodness, I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. And in a rare instance, I seriously cannot think back to the first time I saw this movie. I can tell you it's a film that's been in my life since at least the early 90s, not long after it came out, somewhere around there. Like, I remember seeing the second film in 95, and then I remember watching the third film about a year later when that came on HBO for the first time. So, for the first film, yeah, I'm stumped, and this is rare because I'm usually good with these experiences. Like, I get harked on so much from everybody about how I can remember so much, and it's like, I, I don't know, I just have a memory of things. But when it comes to seeing Darkman for my first time, I'm left clueless because I have no answer, and I can't think of one for the life of me. I cannot honestly think. I, no, I got nothing. I'm sorry. It was early 90s. That's all I got. Not long after its release. So, yeah. Sorry to disappoint, but um, that's all. That's all for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to move on then to the uh, box office numbers in the form of box office receipts. Get receipts. So Dark Man opened up on August 24th, 1990 from Universal Pictures. It opened up across 1,786 screens, coming in at first place opening weekend, grossing $8 million. Second weekend, though, it dropped down to second place, but it grossed $7.9 million just $0.1 million short than the first weekend's box office numbers. I can't even put that in the context what that means because that's just, it's that's insane. That doesn't that never happens, especially in a film like this. So, more on that in a second. Total gross, $48.8 million against a budget of $14 million. So, a couple things to unpack here. One, that second weekend drop. 
it's virtually non-existent since just as many people went and saw it in the theaters the second week. It's That never happens. And you can definitely say that this is an instance where word of mouth most certainly played a part in the financial success of this film. Marketing came out with that Who is Darkman campaign in June of 1990. Everything had Darkman all over it. The hype started a couple months before it came out. And that was the whole thing. Who is Darkman? Because no one knew what this was. And it was a big mystery. They wanted to create some intrigue for the character prior to its release. And you know what? I think it helped. I think it helped. But even after marketing, Darkman would go on to make nearly three times its budget and spawn two direct-to-video sequels that I personally have a love-hate relationship for. But before we talk about the film at bay, before we really dive into things, let's do our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though not and on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection, the song is Radiation. All right, let's do top five original IP superhero films. There we go. So, in no particular order, my honorable mentions, got three or four, Brightburn, Unbreakable, Blank Man, Tank Girl, all good films, Brightburn's a little bit different, although that technically isn't really a superhero film, but it has superhero qualities. So, as for my actual top five, number five, kicking off my list, Mystery Men from 99. I mean, everyone loves Mystery Men. It's just, it's the cult classic of cult classics. Um, another one that's kind of familiar, but a little darker, Super, number four, with Rain Wilson, Kevin Bacon, Liv Tyler. Very underrated. Oh, and Elliot Page as well. Very underrated film, too. Check it out if you haven't already. Number three, Sky High. I am a sucker for Disney. I have loved this film since the moment I saw it 15-odd years ago, whenever it was. Um, just a super great film. Makes me feel happy. Uh, great characters. Love the plot. Keeps me intrigued. Bruce Campbell is also in it, and that's never a bad thing. Number two, keeping that Disney thing going. The Incredibles. I mean, it's The Incredibles, guys. It, everyone loves The Incredibles, me included. And number one, for reasons that we're about to get into, Darkman... And that is my top five this week, original IP superhero films. So, let's get into the film effect breakdown of Darkman. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch movie in its face more than I had last night definitely worth your time it's it's definitely worth revisiting 15 minutes in i'm like uh dorothy we're not in oakland anymore it's in 4k buddy check it out so let's get down to the nitty-gritty starting with the super swift summary of the plot so the breakdown of dark man is a real easy one liam neeson plays dr peyton westlake him and his assistant Yaki are working on a new type of synthetic skin to help burn victims, but they can't get past a flaw that causes the skin to rapidly disintegrate after 99 minutes. Think of it as a 3D printer for human skin, if you will. Westlake's girlfriend Julie, played by a Frances McDormand, 
is an attorney who at the same time discovers an incriminating document known as the Belisarius Memorandum, which shows that developer Lewis Strack Jr. has been taking bribes from members of the Zoning Commission. Not good. So Strack, his main henchman, is Robert Durant, played by Larry Drake in his most menacing performance. In the film's opening scene, we see Durant and his gang of goons take down rival Eddie Black as well as Black's entire organization, but not before Durant takes Black's fingers with a cigar cutter, a little trademark of his for his personal collection. Even though Julie's been warned by Strack about Durant, Durant and his men show up at Westlake's lab one night looking for the memorandum, just as the two discover that light is the key to making skin last longer than 100 minutes. They kill Yaki and they seemingly kill Westlake after burning his hands, dunking his head in acid, and then leaving him in the lab as it explodes right as Julie arrives, since Westlake shits where he eats, apparently. But Westlake's burning body is instead blasted out into the nearby river, where he's found as a John Doe and subjected to radical treatment, which sees his spinothmic tract nerves cut to prevent physical pain from being felt at the cost of tactile sensation. Because of this, he's given enhanced strength due to adrenal overload, which prevents injuries from incapacitating him, but also mentally destabilizes him more and more and drives him to anger and rage throughout the movie. Peyton escapes into the night after waking up from his coma at the hospital, where he finds some old clothes and a trench coat in a rainy alleyway. He returns to his burnt-down apartment-slash-lab and turns it into his new lab and hideout spot. He begins a prolonged process of digitally recreating his own face, and in the meantime, begins extracting out his revenge against Durant and his men. First up, Ted Raimi's Rick, which sees him being held up from a sewage manhole and into oncoming traffic. Peyton finds out the whereabouts of the rest of the crew before holding Rick up until a vehicle finally strikes and kills him off screen. And then we see Peyton studying the others and Durant's crew in order to better understand them when he eventually takes the role of them using their faces that he's created. When his own face is done, he wastes zero time reconnecting with Julie and making her believe that he was only in a coma and not dead. But his face only has 99 minutes before it starts to bubble and melt apart. During this time, Julie also confirms that Strack was comforting her during their time apart when she thought that he was dead, but they weren't seeing each other the way Peyton believed that they were. Peyton then assumes the identity of Durant's henchman, Pauly, and steals a money drop, makes it look like Pauly stole the money himself, and sets it up so Durant and his men find tickets to Rio for Pauly while the real Pauly's knocked out in his hotel room. They deduct that him and the missing Rick were planning on skipping town together, so he throws Polly out of the window to his death. In a funny scene with Darkman, he's sitting on a street bench, and this woman who witnesses Polly thrown out the window looks over and she sees, you know, Peyton with Polly's face, and she just freaks out and he runs off as the shit starts to bubble. It's pretty funny. We've been very concerned about you. Hey, Mr. Durant. I must have overslept. I'm sorry. I guess I missed the pickup, huh? Where's the money, Paulie? What money? I, I, I didn't make the pickup. Rio. In first class. How delightful. And another one for Rick. Well. That explains his disappearance. Hey, I don't know nothing about that. Where is the money, Paulie? What money? 
I swear to God, Mr. Durant, I didn't make the pickup. I've been right here sleeping. Jesus, I swear to God. But I don't even know how I got dressed. Well, Pauline. Have a nice flight. So Peyton takes Julie on a date to a carnival where the side effects of his mental stability begins to occur, leading to him having a breakdown and breaking a couple fingers from a worker after a dispute occurs involving a pink elephant that he wins fair and square, only to have it argued by the worker before he takes his anger out on the guy. Julie follows Peyton back to his lab and discovers what he's been doing. Instead of being scared away, Julie tells Peyton that she still loves him regardless. Julie goes on to tell Strack that she can't see him anymore when she discovers the memorandum on his desk, confirming that he's been working with Durant. And she tells him that Westlake is still alive. Strack then says that as long as he has the memorandum, no charges can be filed. Julie eventually leaves, and Strack orders Durant to capture the girl and to kill Westlake. So Durant does just that. He kidnaps Julie, and he attacks Westlake's lab, along with the rest of his men. During the attack, Westlake subdues one of Durant's goons, Guzman, and applies a synthetic face of his own so that the other goon, Smiley, can kill him before realizing who he just really killed. When he sees that he just killed Guzman, the real Peyton, wearing Smiley's face, knocks him out and leaves him to blow up with the rest of the building after he fills the warehouse with gas and rigs a drinking bird to ignite the gas. We never see what happens to Dan Hicks, Skip, the goon with the prosthetic leg machine gun that we see throughout the movie, but there's the deleted scene that we see that he was killed by Darkman with his own prosthetic leg. And meanwhile, Durant escapes in a helicopter with Westlake dangling from an attached cable. Eventually, Peyton uses said cable to latch onto a truck, which pulls the helicopter into a wall at the beginning of a tunnel and explodes, killing Durant seemingly. You'd think that would have killed Durant for certain reasons, but Darkman 2 exists, and this episode's listenership will determine whether or not we give that the film effect treatment one day. So Strack and Peyton, who's disguised as Durant, take Julie up to the top of an unfinished building that he's been working on. On the way up, Strack mentions Durant's children. Durant's response gives him up as he doesn't have any kids. And Strack reminds him of that before attacking him along with his other henchmen from 600 feet above. Peyton eventually gains the upper hand and when he's bolted to a beam by a bolt gun, breaks free and dangles Strack by his ankle in the air. Strack says that killing him would not be something that he could live with and can't do it. He starts to laugh and he taunts Peyton when he suddenly drops Strack saying, I'm learning to live with a lot of things.
learned to live with a lot of things. So Julie tries to convince Westlake that he can still return to his old life, but he tells her that he has changed internally as well, and he cannot subject anyone to his new vicious nature. He rushes from Julie as they exit an elevator, pulling on a mask and running into a crowd of pedestrians as Bruce Campbell, in a fun final cameo as the final shemp. When Julie can't find him, a disguised Westlake watches her for a few moments before turning and walking away, stating to the audience through narration, I am everyone and no one. Everywhere, nowhere, call me Dark Man. End credits. All right, let's talk about the production history of the film. So, the idea of Dark Man developed from a short story that Raimi had written about a man who could change his face. The story drew elements from The Phantom of the Opera, The Elephant Man, and The Shadow, which Raimi had previously sought out the rights to. But when he was rejected, he decided to write his own superhero film. Raimi was inspired by universal horror films of the 30s and 40s because they made me fear the hideous nature of the hero and at the same time drew me to him. Went back to that idea of the man who is noble and turns into a monster. He originally wrote a 30-page short story titled The Dark Man and then developed it into a 40-page treatment. At this point, according to Raimi, it became the story of a man who had lost his face and had to take on other faces, a man who battled criminals using this power. It also became more of a tragic love story in the tradition of the Hunchback in Notre Dame. In 1987, Raimi submitted the treatment to Universal Pictures, which they liked, green-lighted a budget in the range of $8 to $12 million, and suggested that he get a screenwriter to flesh out the story more. So the script went through 12 drafts overall. The reason for this is because Sam wanted to explore Peyton's arc over the course of the film. He said, I, de I decided to explore a man's soul. In the beginning, a sympathetic, sincere man. In the middle, a vengeful man committing heinous acts against his enemies. And in the end, a man full of self-hatred for what he had become, who must drift into the night, into a world apart from everyone he knows and all the things he loves. The more Raimi worked, the more Darkman became a crime-fighting figure like Batman, a non-superpowered man who, here, is a hideous thing who fights crime. As he became that hideous thing, it became more like the Phantom of the Opera, the creature who wants the girl but who was too much of a beast to have her, according to Raimi. The process of developing this treatment into a screenplay was difficult, with Raimi hiring ex-Navy SEAL Chuck Fair. Based on his work on the actual film Navy Seals, he wrote the first draft, and then Raimi's brother Ivan, who was a doctor, wrote drafts two through four with Raimi. Ivan made sure that the medical aspects and scientific elements were authentic as possible, given the nature of the story. And then as Raimi and his producing partner Robert Tappert progressed through various drafts, they realized that they had a potential franchise on their hands. Universal brought in screenwriting brothers Daniel and Joshua Golden to work on the script, According to Daniel, they were presented with various drafts and lots of little story documents. There was just material everywhere. Drafts seemed to go in many directions. Golden said that they spent a lot of time talking and pulling together a way of making the story work. I think that mostly we talked in terms of the nuts and bolts of the story. The Goldens added new lines of dialogue, new characters, and bits of action. The studio still wasn't satisfied, so the Raimi brothers wrote they wrote drafts 6 through 12 before they had a shooting script. Raimi wanted to emphasize Peyton slash Darkman's arc over the course of the film, saying, I decided to explore a man's soul. Working with Universal meant a 
significant budgetary increase for Raimi, allowing him to design and build a laboratory set for Darkman and afford helicopters and professional stuntmen to film the climactic helicopter chase through the city. He was eventually given $14 million to work with, including larger schedule and more effects work. Visually, the filmmaker was interested in playing homage to Universal Horror Films of the 30s. Production designer Robert Sayre remarked, If you look at Darkman's lab that he moves into, which is an old warehouse, what was on my mind was Dr. Frankenstein. There were a number of references visually to what we were thinking about in regards to those films. Remy consciously wanted to tone down his style because of the desire to get into the characters' heads and follow them as real human beings in extraordinary circumstances. McDormand and Neeson worked closely in rehearsals, rewriting the three love scenes they have together after he becomes Darkman. They got through these scenes, according to the actress, by depending on each other's knowledge of theater and each other. The film was shot on location in Los Angeles and in Toronto and at Santa Clarita Studios in Santa Clara, California, beginning on April 19th and ending on August 10th, 1989. Raimi said directing McDormand was very difficult. Apparently, I didn't know Fran as well as I thought I did. The reason it was difficult was that our conception of the best movie to make differed, arguing and trying to make the best picture possible. We did come across disagreements, but they were very healthy. Durant's finger collection developed over Fair and the Ringby Brother drafts. The director wanted a specific trademark for the character, one that hinted at a military background. Neeson worked in 10-piece prosthetic makeup, sometimes for 18 hours. He saw the lengthy time spent in extensive makeup as a challenge and liked the idea of working behind a mask on camera and just exploring the possibilities of what that entailed. He and makeup effects artist Tony Gardner did tests using specific glues, foams, and bandage coverings. They also timed how fast they could apply the prosthetic makeup and put the costume on. Neeson worked with the costume designer on his outfit, including aspects like the, like the cloak, the hardest part for the actor was speaking with false teeth, and he ended up doing a lot of work on my voice. I didn't want the false teeth to move at all. And that's weird, too. The, the false teeth thing is one thing, personally, that I just... It, it doesn't take me out of the element when I'm watching the movie, but I'd be a liar if I said that it doesn't make me think when I do see it. Because, you know, you can't pronounce some certain things because there's no lip. It's just it's, it's how these things work, you know? So Raimi and Tapper ran into conflicts with the studio during post-production. The director had a problem with the editor that the studio assigned him, and eight weeks into assembling the rough cut, he was not following Raimi's storyboards. The editor had a nervous breakdown and left. Early preview screenings didn't go well at all. People were laughing in the wrong places, and they complained about a lack of a happy ending. Universal told Raimi that some people rated Dark Man the worst film they had ever seen. According to executives, the film was one of the worst scored pictures in Universal's history. Then, two preview screenings, one with Danny Elfman's score, went well. Tappet remembers, the experience on Darkman was very difficult for Sam and I. It wasn't the picture we thought it should be, based on the footage we shot and all that. The studio got nervous about some kind of wild things in it and made us take them out, which was unfortunate. Raimi did like the brilliant marketing campaign that the studio came up with, releasing posters in advance with the silhouette of the main character and the question, Who is Darkman? written across. According to the director, the marketing made the film a moneymaker, and I agree with that tenfold. I've been saying all this time, knowing what I know about this movie, the four times the budget that it grossed at in the end of its box office run 
and then of course down the road and and the home media and stuff like that it made its money because of the marketing people were curious like you know batman was still on a lot of people's heads and they were kind of still riding that high on superhero films because they weren't really getting them back then like they do today they were kind of a far and few between sort of thing back then so when you were getting one you knew about it it was a special moment obviously so with this they just made it a mystery kind of like an old like a noir element like this fedora wearing trench coat clad wearing person that we know nothing about we just see a silhouette and a simple question three words who is dark man and that's all we needed that that was enough to just get everyone's curiosity rolling and people were talking people got curious and they went and saw it i'd be a liar if i didn't say i was jealous of this this is genius marketing if you ask me so that's what did it danny off instead of his score again old-fashioned and melodramatic but in a way that i'm crazy about sam raimi has a wonderful visual style that lends itself easily to music it was an enormous relief writing long extended musical sequences something which is very rare in modern films no reason to hold back on this one okay so let's talk more about my detailed thoughts of the movie right off the cuff that beautiful universal 75th anniversary logo just instantaneously makes me think of child's play 2 that movie has a lot of rewatchability from my childhood and seen it so many times as much as i have that movie also kicks off with the 75th anniversary logo so naturally when movies come out that have that logo from the same year this and kindergarten cup then just naturally my mind goes to child's play 2 so that's why and you can always count on down you can always tell when Danny Elfman's doing the score with his trademark sound, that's like the first thing that you notice off the bat here is that Danny Elfman score. You know you're in for a good time when you hear it. And during the opening, uh, whatever you want to call it, between the, the, the two gangs, you got Eddie Black's crew and then you've got Durant and his crew. One of the guys in Durant's crew is played by veteran actor Dan Hicks, who's unfortunately no longer with us, but he's been in pretty much everything that Sam Raimi did from the 80s and whatnot he was in. Bum leg? No leg. I was engaged to a girl once with a wooden leg. Yeah? What happened? Had to break it off. (laughs) All right, cut the crap. I got three things to say to you, Durant. One... I ain't selling my property to nobody. Muscles Eddie Black, especially a bunch of dinks. And three, if y'all don't like that, which I can already see you don't, we can cut your balls off. Maybe that'd be more satisfactory to you. Also, <laughs> the killer in the underrated 1989 slasher film Intruder that was directed by Scott Spiegel that Raimi also has a part in along with his brother Ted. Check it out if you haven't already, Intruder. Um, also, that film always gets overlooked. So he's the guy with the prosthetic leg, Dan Hicks. And I, I just 
I love how most most of the guys in this gang have like a trademark. You got Smiley, who's always smiling. You've got Hicks with his character Skip, who just hops around. I I love how um, Smiley takes the leg and just starts blasting people, while Skip's just hopping on one leg. <laughs> it's hilarious. He does it a couple times in this movie. It's always it's, it's always good for a laugh. So then at the attack. I alluded to it earlier in my brief breakdown of the of this um, the plot, but Durant's trademark finger cutting. Now, let's consider my points. One by one. One. I try not to let my anger get the better of me. Two. I don't always succeed. Three. I've got seven more points. It's always been... I, I don't want to say I've been fascinated by it, but it's just always something that had stood out to me whenever I think about this movie. So you watch the film with uh, Lenny from Law and Order, who takes people's fingers with a cigar cutter. Yeah, that's this movie, and um, it's, you know, it's just it's a unique way to give him a trademark. It's 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 something to hey, I remember that film, Dark Man. It's got that guy who takes people's fingers with a cigar cutter. Easy enough. Another standout: the opening credits with this smoke-filled lettering. Got that red and blue colors, flashes of the Dark Man character. Tony Gardner, though, that man took over for um, Kevin Yeager on the Chucky franchise. I believe his first film was Seed. Yeah, it was. It was Seed. And Tony Gardner, we talked about him on the show before. Um, One of his first films is my favorite horror movie, Return of the Living Dead. He helped do the makeup effects on that film. And Tony Gardner would go on to be one of the biggest known horror effects artists in the game you know um there's so many people that i think of at the top of my head when i think of horror effects people but of course you've got k k and b is always at the top of the list great nicotero howard Berger, you got your chris wallace um of course john carr beekler Rest in peace, Rick Baker. I think I said him already. Stan Winston, rest in peace. Rob Bottin, Robert Hall, Tom Savini. Uh, who else? Uh, Tom Sullivan, Evil Dead. Duh. Um, Kevin Yeager. I mentioned him already. Robert Kurzman, formerly a K and B. Um, yeah, so many makeup effects artists, and and Tony Gardner is is another one that you can add to the list. So. And I mentioned it before, the whole skin, the synthetic skin uh, process. You can't watch this movie today and tell me that that does not look like 3D printing. It's it it's it's like Ted. It's like Sam had an idea, put it in his movie. Thirty years later, someone stole that idea and turned it into an actual thing. <laughs> That's how it feels. And there's this moment in the movie when. Peyton gets desperate, and of course he loves Julie. You know, he, he, throughout the whole movie, we just hear, Julie! You know, of course he loves her. He's got a heart for, for the woman. So 
naturally he gets desperate early on in the film and he just while she's going to work and he's chasing her down in the taxi he just asked her to marry him julie julie wait um i've been thinking mm-hmm. we should get married Marriage. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I've just started getting things going at the firm, and I really like having my own place. But we're practically living together now. Oh. <laughs> well, marriage means as you answer the phone in the morning, and if it's my grandmother, you don't have to pretend it's the wrong number. <laughs> Poor woman's beginning to think she has Alzheimer's. I can't talk about it now. Come here. Jules, I'm asking you to marry me. Hey, I love you. I mean, I realized. But I gotta think it over, okay? It's the most desperate proposal of any film I think I've ever seen in my entire life. And I had to make a note of it. He just runs out and chases her out to the taxi. And he's like, come on, Julie, when you get home from work, let's just go and get married at the courthouse. It's what it seems like. It's like, let's just go get, get married now. And all of our problems will go away, seemingly. It's like, that eh, doesn't quite work that way. But appreciate the effort. So Tony Gardner, back to him. His design of the Darkman character you can definitely see where he drew inspiration from the Frankenstein and the um, Phantom. It's 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 funny because it's like Frankenstein's creature and the Phantom of the Opera character put them together, and that's kind of what Darkman is. It's it's really something. It's it's always been a a design that stood out to me. Now, of course, you have two looks. You have the the look that you're used to from seeing on the cover art and all the marketing where he's wearing the hat, he's got the trench coat and you know, it's kind of like the, um, I, I don't know. It's, that's like his look at full display. And then he takes the hat off of course. And it's just him with the dangling coat and he's got all these bandages and sometimes the bandages are off. Sometimes they're on. Sometimes you see, you know, the the teeth exposed mouth. Sometimes you don't. Altogether, though, I really think that he nailed it. It's something that, you know, it's, it's a concept based off of two previous ideas that he just kind of mended together. And if you're going to take an idea and draw inspiration from it, what better thing to draw inspiration from than one of your key universal monsters? And if you're going to be a universal movie, then it's it's a no-brainer. So I like the concept of it. It's it's like like the crow almost sort of, but yeah, it's downright impossible to have a conversation about Darkman or any film from Sam Raimi and not talk about the man himself, the man, the myth, the legend. I mean, everything about him, of course, dates back to Evil Dead, even before that, Terror in the Woods. The thing about Raimi is, I can take five different people that have nothing in common with one another. And ask them all individually, what is your favorite Sam Raimi movie? I can almost guarantee you that I'm probably going to get four or five different answers. Because, yeah, naturally, people are probably going to say Evil Dead or Evil Dead 2. But he's just got so many different works of art. And the thing about it is that they're all different in their own way. You can't tell me that Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Crime Wave... Dark Man and the Quick of the Dead. I'll even throw one more movie, a simple plan. I'll throw I'll throw one more in. For the love of the game, you can't tell me any of those movies are the same as one another. 
they're all different and unique in their own way. Um, and I've had people tell me that, that I've said, for the love of the game, is their favorite Sam Raimi movie. I've only had like one or two people in my lifetime say that, but they're out there. They exist. I'm not just making that up. Quick and the Dead is another one. Simple plan. A lot of people love a simple plan. My colleague Justin hates the simple plan. I like the movie. I think it's a really good movie. I'm not going to sit here and gush over it, like pretend like I'm in love with the movie. I haven't even seen the movie in a good 10, 15 years. But Billy Bob Thornton, Bill Paxton, Bridget Fonda, damn good cast, damn good movie. Um, that's just one that that, that, that needs a re-release so bad so I can give it a proper rewatch. And then, of course, he went into the comic book territory later on he kind of dipped his toes back in that field with the spider-man films spider-man spider-man 2 spider-man 3 he did a Nas, the great and powerful adaptation and then dr strange in the multi-universe in the multiverse of madness this man has his hands in the comic book films for more than you even realize you know that's three different franchises i've named already this spider-man and dr strange so it's killing it and then, of course, when it comes to his work as a producer, I mean, him as a producer, we've got movies like the Evil Dead remake, we've got 30 Days of Night, Boogeyman from 2005, The Grudge remake, Time Cop. Pretty sure he at least was an EP for The Shadow, the same year as Time Cop. The Don't Breathe films. More recently, 65. I know he produced that with his product, with his Ghost Pictures production. But yeah, I mean, Sam Raimi's been around a lot longer than people think. He's got... I mean, even he's an actor as well. It's Murder, The Evil Dead, he's a hitchhiker. We talked about that in that episode. Uh, Maniac Cop 2, he's Intruder, like I mentioned. Indian Summer, The Hudsucker Proxy... He's in the Shining television series from 97 from Mick Garris. Um, you know, he's a fucking... He, he does a lot of things. You know, he's just a guy who has been around for a long time. And even when he got into the game, just the way he did it, it was kind of like a DIY type of way. With uh, And then we talked about that in the Evil Dead episode, the way him and Bruce just did whatever they could to get the movie made and you know after that sky's the limit so but then the second act of this film comes around and we are introduced to the lead villain colin freels mr strack i've been going over some documents and i've come across something that puzzles me it's a memo from your office to a mr claude belisarius it details certain payments that... Yes, yes, I know the memo. Well, it seems like the payments were... Were payoffs. It's the zoning commission. Bribes to call a spade a spade. Does that shock you? No, I guessed as much. You weren't supposed to know about it. That file was not supposed to circulate. However, I am asking you to understand. Take a look at that model, Julie. That's the dream. Acres of riverfront reclaimed from decay. Thousands of jobs created. A building block. A very large building block laid for the future. Not such a bad dream as dreams go. And if the price of realizing that dream is the occasional distasteful chore, well, 
I don't run away. I say, so be it. So, wanna book me? The fact remains that I'm in possession of evidence of the commission of a crime. Well, let me suggest this. Will you excuse yourself for a few minutes? Go to the ladies' room, leaving your briefcase here. Now, what happens to that memorandum while it's in my custody is my responsibility. I wish it were that simple. But first of all, I don't have the memo with me. I'm trying to protect you. Does the name Robert Durant mean anything to you? Drugs, racketeering. And real estate. Robert Durant is a competitor for the riverfront. He's a very dangerous man, Julie. And I fully believe he'd do anything to get his hands on that document. <laughs> I just realized, too, he's Walensky in Dark City. The, the guy, the ex-cop who went crazy and then towards the end of the film when he talks to, I think it's William Hurt, he throws himself out into an um, oncoming train, kills himself. Yeah, he's that guy in that movie. And what's in the light that makes the formula stable? Like we just, they just say, oh, because you had the, you had the lights off and the, the, the skin didn't, you know, start to bubble after a hundred minutes. What about the light though? It's, it's like they discovered this thing and then before they can really do anything with it, Durant and his men show up and it's like, oh, we're going to forget about this idea now. They're still stable. Time. Uh, 101 minutes. Finally, we can replace damaged skin tissue. No, Yegatito, no, not quite, my friend, not yet. All we've got is a piece of the puzzle. There's still a big question, how to keep the cell stable past 99 minutes in the light. But at least now we know it's all about light. I'll get it. for documents. Tell us where to find the Belisarius memorandum and we shall disappear like a nightmare before the breaking day. I don't know what you're talking about. Unfortunate. What memorandum? No, please. And I love the round robin introduction of Durant and his men. Like there are a bunch of Looney Tunes characters with their glowing smiles and over-the-top traits. And I've, Mentioned before, you got Dan Hicks just hopping around on one leg while his associate Smiley is using his leg to fire off people. And Ted Raimi is a goddamn national treasure. Pretend you didn't. 
he's just got this look about him and he's got this over the top way of acting that I'm here for and he does it in a way that isn't too much that I still you, you, can, you can appreciate you know you can appreciate a guy like Ted Raimi who's just all in on the goofiness and does whatever he's told he's the most professional utmost actor you can think of I mean the, the man's been in so many different works of material as a character actor you know it, that, that goes far beyond his brother's movies you know Ted Raimi's made a name for himself in, in the horror in, in the community period and in, in cinema <laughs> and movies in general Ted Raimi I feel is yeah, like I said he's a fucking national treasure guys and Peyton and his assistant who get killed and left for dead and everything that happens to him is because of this memorandum that we talked about before the memorandum is kind of like the MacGuffin of this movie in the sense that Julie talks about it early on in the movie when she's you know talking to um Peyton, everything that happens, she, I don't know, I, I, I feel like it, she's to blame. If we're going to point fingers, you got to point them at Julie because she just brushes this memorandum off. Like she, she's aware of it. She's aware of what it could lead to, yet she's still going to put on, you know, put on that suit and go fight the good fight. No, Julie, because there's things called consequences, and if you'd stop for at least five minutes and think about them, maybe you'd kind of, you know, stay in your lane a little bit more, and this wouldn't have had to happen. But it did, and we got the movie we got, so. And I'm not sure how I feel about the scene transition featuring Julie after Peyton gets killed, or, or not killed, but the apartment explosion. And she's standing there, like, in awe. And then it transitions to the funeral. And she's suddenly all draped up in black. It's... Look. I know that Sam is shooting for a thousand with this. And I respect it. And I... I, As someone who can appreciate a good rough idea like this... I know why he did it. I know why he chose to do it. And still, even after going through edits and, and whatnot, he kept it in the movie, in the final cut. It just doesn't really hold up the best. I'm sorry it doesn't. Um, it's a shot that I appreciate and respect, but don't need it in this movie. It just doesn't, it doesn't hold up well. That's all. That's all I want to say about it. Because like I said, it's a good idea. And then Jenny Allgetter just basically shows up to provide an exposition explanation about why Peyton's there and then dips out. Next, we have a 30, 35-year-old male, no ID, no medical history. He was found on the riverbank just south of the city. There's a sizable population of homeless and indigents there. We get at least three no-names like him every week. Nobody does anything about the homeless until they become train wrecks like Mr. John Doe here. He's got burns covering over 40% of his body. The hands and face are the most severe. Ten years ago, pain from the burns would have been intolerable. This man would have spent the rest of his life screaming. Now, we use the rank of Eretz technique. Quite simply, we sever the nerves within the spinothalamic tract. There. 
which, as you know, transmits neural impulses of pain and vibratory sense to the brain. No longer receiving impulses of pain, you stick him with a pin, and he can't even feel it. As in many radical procedures, there are serious side effects to this operation. When the body ceases to feel, when so much sensory input is lost, the mind grows hungry. Starved of its uh, regular diet of input, it takes the only remaining stimulation it has, the emotions, and amplifies them, giving rise to alienation, loneliness. Uncontrolled rage is not uncommon. Now surges of adrenaline flow unchecked through the body and brain, giving him augmented strength. Hence, she probably strength. filmed this scene the same day as her child's play two scenes on the Universal City lot because she is in this movie for all of two minutes to give a little brief monologue to a couple of students to stab him with a pen when I say him or pronouns pal talking about Peyton while he's in his coma stabs him and then moves on see ya Jenny uh, love Raimi's uses of, of stock footage to simulate Peyton's psychotic breakdown that's always a plus and his digital sky effect, I like it to an extent. Of course, Sam gives his little brother Ted the goofiest death in the movie. And then Peyton dressed up as a dancing freak with his tin hat. It's an interesting choice. That's all I'm going to say. And why isn't Peyton upfront with Julie about his condition from the start? His acting around her at first is so bizarre. The way his delivery comes off as his tone and pitches change various times in the same sentence. I need you too, Jules. That's why I'm here. It's just that I, I feel like a rag doll, all pieced together. You know, my, my insides are on my outside. If you could only see how I feel inside, I was ashamed, afraid. I was afraid that you wouldn't want me anymore. Of course I still want you. Julie, Julie, what if I was hurt? Like, like horribly scarred, that you couldn't bear to look at me anymore. You couldn't even bear to have me touch you. What then? Huh? Huh? I don't know. Honestly, I, I don't know, Pate. Why do you ask me that? And look at you, you're fine. And you're back. Yes, I am back, aren't I? Just like always. It's a little much, but I, again, I get it. I get the reason behind it. But it's 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 all in the execution, and I'm not a fan of it. And I appreciate uh, Sam showing his audience Durant at home, even for a brief moment. <laughs> Do I want to talk about the carnival scene with the elephant now, or save it for the third act? We'll talk about it now. Talk about this carnival scene. God, I love you, darling. Oh, it's good to be back. Oh, Julie Hastings, I'm gonna win for you the biggest. Uh, Fuzziest, pinkest animal doll in that rack. Yes. And then I gotta run. Sir. You always have to run. Why does it always have to be so dramatic? I have my hospital sessions, Jules. I'm not 100% cured yet, but I soon will be. Where is this place exactly? Pate, I want to be involved somehow. Can I at least take you back there? No. No, please, Julie. I don't want you to see me there. I don't want you to think of me as an invalid or... Or some kind of a freak. Uh, 
The pink elephant, please. I'm sorry, buddy. It don't count unless you're behind the line. Well, I was behind the line. Not hard. <laughs> I was standing right here with my girlfriend. Now, the pink elephant, if you please. No way. It doesn't matter, Pete. It matters. I won a pink elephant for my girlfriend. Why don't you just uh, get lost, pal? The elephant. Quickly. Didn't you hear me? Weirdo. So I know between myself and my brother Andrew, this scene gets brought up a lot in conversations. It's just a fucking weird scene, that's all. And it's a memorable one, too, because Peyton's taking Julie. He's got 99 minutes, but he still takes that risk. I think he's only got nine minutes left by the time they get off the Ferris wheel or something like that, and he goes to win her the stuffed animal. Sorry, the pink elephant. And then even the pink elephant scene, what I like about the scene is the build-up. The intensity and the way Sam is showing you that intensity through stock footage, through Dutch angles, through extreme close-up shots, all in the same frame. It's it's all happening at once. And then all it takes is for this guy to put his two fingers on Peyton for him to grab them, twist them around 180, breaking them. And I love the three-way reaction. You got a shot of him screaming. You got a shot of Peyton screaming. And then it turns, you got a fucking shot of even Julie screaming. The three of them freaked out about what's all transpired. And then he just takes it. He's like, take it, take it. Take the fucking elephant and just bolts. It's a lovely scene. But yeah, and then the final act... Before we get into the final act, I do want to bring back up the characters of Strack and Durant. Because while I love Durant, I think Robert Durant's one of the greatest henchman villains ever. Mainly due to Larry Drake's performance as the character. But I think this film has a real villain problem. It has a it, it's it's got such a obvious just i don't know antagonist issue it's it's not durant the way you would think it is especially when they have a whole sequel that's centered on his return like he's the big you know like he's the shredder of this series and he's coming back for more it's like no he's the main villain's henchman but then in the second movie the way it's all hyped about his return if you didn't know any better you would think that robert durant's the main villain of both films when in reality, he's a side villain in this movie. He's just the henchman to the lead villain who isn't even threatening enough to be the main villain of this movie. Like, Colin Friels, Colin Friels is a good actor. He's done some good stuff in his day, but portraying 
the lead villain of a Sam Raimi movie isn't one of them. He, he, he doesn't, it, it's just not there. there. He lacks a lot of things, including just delivery and presentation. I mean, he comes off as a second bit Southern book. He, he comes off as a two bit Brooklyn. He comes off as a two bit Brooklyn impersonator. And that's the worst you know there's nothing worse than a guy who's trying to come off as threatening and all he's doing is coming at you with these brooklynisms because he's trying to get an accent my accent just went way off the whatever you know what i'm talking about when in reality it's it not a strong villain that's all and the way that third act the climax up on the the construction site up above it's just i've never been a fan that's all and Francis McDormand, I love and I hate her in this movie. If you're not going to kill me, I have things to do. If you're not going to kill me, I have things to do. That line that she gives, the layers of fear and strength in the same shot when she gives that line towards the end, it's something that she's so good at. Yeah, Francis McDormand, really great. As an actress, she's fucking fantastic. There are moments of this film, however, where I feel that she's a bit overqualified for the role. I really do. I mean, she can nail a fucking scene, and then then the next scene, it it just it's it doesn't it just doesn't click with me. It's not convincing enough. Like she lacks something, and I'm not sure what it is. And we've been talking about this film for the better part of almost an hour now, and I have not once brought up the stunt work. I'm doing that now awesome incredible amazing excellent just everything that you can possibly say that goes into the stunt work holy shit in this movie especially his double the dark man's double hanging from the helicopter wire some great shit it's clearly practical you know it's it's just an old school method of blowing up cars and shutting down certain streets of the city for a few days is Nothing more, nothing less. It's just really great. Uh, and then the film ends with Bruce Campbell. Of course, Bruce Campbell was supposed to be Darkman. More on that in a minute. So let's do our cast and crew breakdown in the film. Liam Neeson as Dr. Peyton Westlake, a.k.a. Darkman. Francis McDormand as Julie Hastings. Colin Frills as Louis Drack Jr. Larry Drake as Robert G. Durant. Nelson Mashita as... Yakatito Yanajito, Yaki, Ted Raimi as Rick, Nicholas Worth as Paulie, Dan Hicks as Skip, Jesse Lawrence Ferguson as Eddie Black, Raphael H. Roblito as Rudy Guzman, and Dan Bell as Sam Smiley Rogers. Film was directed by Sam Raimi, written for the screen by Chuck Farr, Sam Raimi, Ivan Raimi, Dan Goldman, and Joshua Golden. Produced by Robert Tappert, cinematography by Bill Pope. We talked about him on the show before. This was his first movie. We talked about Bill, Bill Pope back when we did the uh, Matrix movies a couple years ago. Um, he also shot Army of Darkness, previous episode Blank Check, Clueless, Bound, The Matrix Trilogy, Spider-Man's 2 and 3, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Baby Driver, Shang-Chi, and ant-man quantumania so he's basically shot a lot of sam raimi a lot of edgar wright and a lot of wachowski brothers edited by bud s smith who also did flash dance and the exorcist before being replaced by david Steven. music 
like good old Danny Elfman. We talked about his trademark sound before. He's just a guy whose music from Oingo Boingo to Batman to fuck and, and Nightbreed. I mean, he's iconic. Everything that he's done. And we've talked about Danny Elfman on this podcast a dozen times at least. We had to have because he's just scored so many movies. And every time he gets a credit where they'll talk about it, Danny Elfman's just one of the all-time greatest composers we'll ever be able to hear. He's, he's that good. So... Hopefully I gave you all a good enough film effect breakdown on Darkman. We're going to move on now to Trivial Pursuit. It's funny. Little things used to mean so much to Shelley. I used to think they were kind of trivial. Believe me, nothing is trivial. A really quick blink and you'll miss it effect during the takedown of Westlake and his partner and they're, you know, taking down the lab and everything early on in the movie there's a shot i mentioned that they burned his hands wet westlakes when his hands are on the thing and they turn it up and you see his hands actually burn that stop motion effect is done by the chiodo brothers who did critters who did killer clowns from outer space um as well as a bunch of other stuff that they're known for just look them up the chiodo brothers they're legends in, in effects work in hollywood especially when it comes to like miniatures and stuff they're so fucking great so yeah i didn't even know that until i was doing my research for this movie i had no idea that the kyoto, kyoto brothers had an uncredited effect in this movie and apparently bill paxton all but had the role of Darkman, even told his friend Liam Neeson about it. Ended up with the role is Liam. With Liam ended up with the role, which angered Paxton so much that they didn't talk for months. Speaking of the role, Sam Raimi wanted someone who could play a monster with the soul of a man. Someone who could do all that beneath a lot of the makeup. He also liked Liam Neeson's Gary Cooper charisma. Neeson was down Neeson was drawn to the operatic nature of the story and the inner turmoil of the character. To research the role, Neeson contacted the Phoenix Society. The Phoenix Society, the Phoenix Society, an organization that helps accident victims with severe disfigurements adjust to re-entering society. Larry Drake was cast because of the way he underplayed Durant. Quiet, careful, but intense. Raimi had never won Raimi had never watched a single episode of LA Law where Drake played the developedly challenged Benny, but Drake's face reminded him of a modern-day Edward G. Robinson. He looked so mean and domineering, yet he had an urbane wit about him. Raimi believed these qualities made him the perfect adversary for Darkman. Even though he's not the main adversary, Julia Roberts was nearly cast as Julie Hastings before she got the role in Pretty Woman and had to be replaced. Demi Moore was also considered, and Bridget Fonda, talked about her before, actually did screen testing for the role. Kathy Bates was originally supposed to cameo as the burn doctor, but backed out before filming, and that's when Jenny Auguter was brought in at the request of John Landis, who also cameos in the same scene as a bearded and masked physician with large glasses who observes the burn, the burn doctor's presentation of Westlake's grizzly state. The Coen brothers did some uncredited work of the script, some doctoring, if you will. See our Evil Dead 2 episode for more on that relationship. Sam ultimately wanted Bruce Campbell to play the lead role, but the producers were uncertain that Bruce could handle the part. Campbell instead makes a small cameo at the very end of the film, and that is that. Um, if I were Bruce, I'd be pissed. 
because leading up to this moment, late 80s, I feel like Bruce had already established himself as, you know, you know what you're going to get when you, when you see Bruce Campbell. He, he had the look, he had the chin, he had the charisma. This was just silly that he was overlooked or, or not even considered. Nothing against Liam Neeson. This is, you know, part of the many reasons why I love that. You know, why I love Liam Neeson so much is because of this movie. But honestly, Bruce, Bruce, baby, this was fucking Bruce's role to shine. Seriously, if Bruce Campbell got the role of Darkman, what would have happened to his career? Would we have still gotten The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr.? Would we have still gotten his cameos in such films as Congo? Would we have gotten Escape from L.A.? What would we have gotten if he took this role? If he got this? Not that he didn't want to take it. He did want to take it. It was the studio who said, no, we don't want it. But what if the studio was different? What if the studio actually gave in? That'd be pretty crazy, right? I mean, think about it. Bruce Campbell, big studio film, 1990, potential for a franchise, Bruce Campbell as the lead. I mean, you would think after the second and third films, when they replaced Liam for uh, Arnold Vuzlow, where was he then? Why couldn't you replace him with Bruce Campbell then? Like, mid-90s, Bruce Campbell was still doing work like this. It's not like he was above it. I, I, I don't know. I don't understand why they couldn't have at least brought him back or considered him for Dark Man's 2 and 3. But I tell you this, if we do cover it down the road, if this episode gains enough listeners for me to warrant a second and third episode or, or an episode of Dark Man 2 and 3, then that's something that, that I will be looking into because I'm kind of curious myself now why he wasn't at least offered the role after Liam Neeson couldn't do the sequels. So that's all. Um... And in his memoir, Bruce Campbell, his um, his book, If Chins Could Kill, he explains that the rough cut of the film featured a scene in which the film's main antagonist, Strack, spreads gold coins across the covers of his bed, strips naked, and writes atop the money. And writes atop the money while maniacally laughing in a in a fetishistic ecstasy. The scene was deemed too disturbing by test audiences and cut from the movie, which baffled Campbell, who argued that was its purpose. Campbell also confesses that this was his personal favorite scene in the entire movie. Bruce, baby, they don't care about you. They didn't even care about you enough to have you play the role. That's why you were stuck to playing the final shimp at the end of the movie for fucking two seconds. But I digress. Love you, Bruce. We're going to move on now to what the critics thought of the film. And the way we do that, I take a little walk down to the critics corner. So let's do that. Right, as of this recording, Darkman currently has a Rotten Tomato score of 61 of 84% based off of 61 reviews. It's got a critical consensus that says gruesome and deliciously broad, 
Sam Raimi's Dark Man bears the haunted soulfulness of gothic tragedy while packing the stylistic verve of onomatopoeia springing off of a comic strip page. It's got a Metascore of 65 out of 100 based on a, based off of 15 reviews and a cinema score of C+. Cisco and Ebes gave the film two thumbs up. Both remarked how original and stylish Raimi's sense of direction was, with Cisco adding that Darkman as a character was quote-unquote interesting. Carol James from the New York Times gave the movie two and a half out of five stars, saying Darkman sustains mild interest throughout, but it never takes off, partly because of real estate scam, gangland shootouts, city corruption, and a love story clutter up the sad story of Westlake's strange mutation. Michael Willington from the LA Times felt that Darkman was the only film at the time that successfully captures the graphic look, rhythm, and style of the superhero books of its time. Terrence Rafferty from The New Yorker said, Raimi works from inside the cheerfully violent adolescent male sensibility of superhero comics as if it were no higher style for a filmmaker to aspire to. In the absence of condescension is refreshing. Peter Travers from the Rolling Stone magazine wrote, Raimi's live-action comic book aims to deliver scares spiked with laughs. That it does. USA Today gave the film 3 out of 4 stars and wrote, With good leads and a few bucks, he's come up with a high-octane revenge piece, mentionable in the same breath as his predecessors. Owen Gleiberman, finally, from Variety, wrote, The movie is full of jaunty, grand ganola touches, the main gangster enjoys snapping and collecting fingers, but Raimi's images also have a spectral kinetic beauty. Alright, so that's what they thought about the movie. Now let's talk about what I thought in the form of pros and cons. Robin, get me my legal pad. It's pros and cons time! <laughs> Alright, my pros. It's refreshing to see an original concept with the Universal Monsters influence on full display. Larry Drake, still on the rise, is a very strong side villain who could easily serve as the film's main antagonist, as I said before. Liam Neeson's very sellable as the film's lead. Sam Raimi, fresh off of doing Evil Dead 2, is clearly still full of unique ideas. Tony Gardner's makeup effects and the film's entire stunt team deserve to be acknowledged here, so I'm going to acknowledge them. One of my biggest pros of this movie. Alright, let's talk about the cons. We all know no film is perfect. Frances McDormand, as great as she is as Julie, I feel was a bit miscast because there are moments, and I'm not saying all of them, but there are some that just feel incredibly off. Like I touched upon this before, like her reaction to everything from Neeson during the fair scene, and then she confronts Strack about the bribery that he was committing. It, it doesn't work, that's all. And that could be a me thing. You know, film is subjective. I say it all the time. But I just personally think that McDormand is maybe too good for this role. That's right. And Strack, this is the, the villain problem, the antagonist issue that this film has. He's just not believable. He's not a strong antagonist at all. Seriously undershadowed by Durant. That's it. Durant should have been the main villain of this movie the way I thought he was growing up. <laughs> but yeah, those are my cons for the movie. So, gonna move on then to Mulligan Moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? If I could change one thing, what would it be? I would replace Neeson with Campbell. <laughs> like, seriously. Like, Evil Dead 2 just came out. 
Bruce Campbell is riding that wave of success. He's getting some roles here and there, but he's not getting the big ones. This would have been a big land. He could have went on to do greater things had he have gotten the chance to play Peyton Westlake here. But he didn't. So we're going to move on then to Finger Looking Good. Finger Looking Good. My favorite moment. It's the carnival scene. It's the only scene I talk about numerous times to people. My brother always references it with me. Um, take the fucking elephant. It's just a, a scene that I look back at and chuckle because it's 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 a film. It's a scene that this film needs. As goofy as it is, I think it holds up well. It's the best moment of the movie for me. All right, so my MVP of the movie. All right, now you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Picking thy MVPs, never easy. It is for this one, actually. Larry Drake, who is all in on his villainous role as Durant. He is killing it, guys. Chewing up every bit of dialogue in every single scene that he's featured in. I especially love it when the two Durants are together, when Darkman's trying to escape the crew, and he's wearing Durant's face, and Durant sees him, when they're both in the, the turnstile door, the revolving door together. There's two of those son of a bitches! moment um but yeah Larry drake rest in peace gotta love that guy i bloated about him during our dr giggles episode so i figured i would continue the trend with this one before i give my final effect rating and slap a double feature pairing to it got one brand new category that we're gonna add from this moment forward it's a physical media category called let's get physical this category on every episode now we're just going to talk about the history of physical media talk about when it was broken when it was released re-released any new features was it a first time for this version of the film and so on and so forth so we knew that dark man came out in theaters in august of 1990 came out on vhs for the first time february 14th 1991 a week later, on February 21st, it was released on Laserdisc for the first time. And then it got a Laserdisc re-release a few years later in 95 with letterbox format for the first time. And then in 1998, on March 31st, it was granted a DVD release for the first time ever. And then seven, eight years later, it was granted an HD DVD release, July 31st, 2007. Remember that format? Very short-lived. Blu-ray one. Speaking of Blu-ray, that didn't come out until June 15th of 2010 before being re-released on February 18th of 2014 by Scream Factory. Now, if 
you don't know who Scream Factory is, it's a boutique film label, one of my favorite boutique labels, who license movies to release them on physical media. Nine times out of ten, they will do their own new transfers on the movies, and then they will do new features. Sometimes they'll take original elements and they'll slap on like an extended version of the movie that's never before been seen or they'll have new commentaries that they'll record with filmmakers or cast people from the movies. They do so many good things to movies that I never thought could be done. I love Scream Factory. I rave about them all the time and their Blu-ray, even though it's almost 10 years old and they haven't upgraded the 4K just yet, I do believe the 4K disc is coming within the next year. But the, the features for this Blu-ray, because the Blu-ray prior to the Scream Factory edition, every edition of this movie that came out got maybe a brief two, three minute behind the scenes making of from like HBO back in the day and the trailer and that's it. Scream Factory, they were able to nab an interview with Liam Neeson who has fond memories of the movie and um, talked about you know his experience on set with Raimi and the rest of the cast which is a pretty good look back a pretty good pretty good retrospect and then they got a Larry Drake interview he's a lot of fun talking about the hazards of being typecast as well as why he loved working on Darkman as much as he did Tony Gardner got an interview in a feature called The Face of Revenge. It's a really interesting piece detailing the film's makeup effects. Henchman Tales is a, fe- is a feature that profiles some of the other bad guys in the movie. Dark Design is a feature that looks at the production design and includes interviews from the production team itself. They got an interview with Frances McDormand, where she talks about her history with the Coen brothers and Sam Raimi. And um, behind the scenes... Uh, featurette, cast and crew interviews, and a commentary with the DP Bill Pope, which is brand new. So, yeah, and that's actually how I watched the movie for this episode is the Scream Factory disc. It's I, I break it out every couple years and put it in because I love the movie and I love the company producing this. So, that's the, like I said, it's not a 4K, there's no 4K edition just yet, but I really do believe it'll be coming in the next year, especially since Scream Factory has been given all their uh, past Universal films that they have licenses for, the 4K treatment, so that all but confirms this is uh, coming up. If it hasn't been announced already, it will be very soon. Alright, so as promised... Gonna give you all my final effect rating. How would you rate this one, Miles? As well as my double feature pairing for the movie. Yeah, we made a great pair. I'm giving this movie Darkman 3.5 stars, even though it's a film I enjoy defending and one that I often revisit. It was never gonna reach the success of Batman. And you know what? That's okay too, because I don't think that that was ever Sam's true intention. As long as it sits and makes money and people turned out to see it and had fun watching it in the same manner that he enjoyed watching films or programs like Dick Tracy and I Spy when he was a kid, then that's all that matters. Guys, Raimi does a lot of really entertaining gags with this film that makes it stand out, like Ted Raimi and the craziness with his death, and the character of Rick when he gets his just desserts for participating in the murders of Yaki, and for helping ruining Westlake's life. And the intentional overuse of the projected skyline in the background 
for no other reason other than it's just a part of his filmmaking style. That's it. And a lot of this falls with Sam Raimi and being 100% real. The way I always am on this show, our boy did take the ball and really ran the distance with Darkman. It's a film that's full of ideas and executions that really do help support its cult status. Like I said, I personally revisit the film every couple years or so, and there's never a dull moment when I watch this. It's always provided me with the amount of fun a film like this should. The action, from the stunts to the choreography and so on, there's a lot of style packed into this film as well. You've got your standard set of Raimi gags, like sudden close-up shots, a lot of his signature projected backgrounds. Liam Neeson and Larry Drake are both so memorable in their roles as Darkman and Durant. I'm just glad that it's seemingly still finding its way into younger audiences' watch lists. I usually find myself telling someone about Darkman every so often. It's not a five-star film like Godfather, and it was never going to be one from the start, and that's okay. I'm just happy that the movie exists. And my double feature pairing, my less than zero noir hero double feature with The Shadow. They just have so much in common, and even Raimi intended on this being a shadow adaptation at first before that was shot down by the studio. The similarities are so alike, it's friggin' impossible to watch one and not think about the other. They're both pulp-inspired stories featuring a trench coat-clad titular character with distinctive abilities and powers. What more needs to be said, really? Am I wrong? Didn't think so. <laughs> and sadly, we have reached the end of our Darkman Breakdown, a film that 100% gets that full film effect seal of approval, one down many more to follow. If this was your first time here on the show, then let us know what you thought by leaving us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, Facebook, email, filmeffectpod at gmail.com, or any podcast platform that also allows ratings or reviews for the show you're playing. Any form of feedback is accepted, just as long as it shows in the algorithm, because these days, it's all about the almighty algorithm. Speaking of algorithms, make sure you're following us on the socials for any up-to-the-minute news, updates, and announcements. Film Effect Pod on Twitter, the Film Effect Podcast everywhere else. Next week on the podcast, we're going back to 1984. Hey, that's the year I was born. To witness and discuss greatness, because next week and the following, we are finally given both the Terminator and T2 Judgment Day, the film effect treatments that they absolutely positively deserve. Trust me when I say that they're both a long time coming, and because that they're some of my favorite action films, means that I cannot wait to talk about them and give them both classics, and give both classics their due diligence. Especially today, with all the threat of AI going viral, seems these films are more important now than ever before, but we'll talk about all that during these episodes next time. Thank you all for your sincere time, and I hope you have enjoyed my deep dive on Darkman. Once again, my name is Ed, and this has been an all-new episode of the Film Effect Podcast. Till next time, bring them home, Sean. All right, gang. We're going to see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim and the opening credits begin to roll.
I finish? Please, can I finish? Okay, I'm finished.